The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Amplifier Advisors, LLC, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to What's Working in Washington on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Hi, it's Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for taking some time to join us to hear more great stories of how people are getting things done here in the nation's cap. Drew Cohen, a CEO of Masterpiece Launchpad, as he'll describe it as a government contractor that spins out technology companies and makes people entrepreneurial, a great model for our region. Courtney Spaeth, the CEO and founder of Growth Period, she helps companies grow and grow they do. She'll talk about how you can successfully scale your business. Ola Sage is CEO of E-Management and CyberRx, two companies here in the region, and she daily crosses the chasm between government commercial and back again. A great example of entrepreneur getting things done here in the region. That's what's in store for you today on our show. Drew Cohen is CEO of Masterpiece Launchpad, an innovative approach to helping our technology entrepreneurs become business leaders. Drew, thanks for taking the time to join us. Jonathan, thanks for having me. Well, Masterpiece Launchpad, it's a great name. What exactly is Masterpiece Launchpad? Sure. Well, so Masterpiece is, is two pieces. We have Masterpiece Solutions, which is a very traditional government contracting company that's based in the Columbia, Maryland area and is there because of the talent pool, right? The, the world-class engineers, particularly cyber software developers that have grown up in that area over the last decade and a half, um, actually a little bit longer. And uh, so there's a great talent pool in that area. But as you mentioned, that talent pool is generally focused on government contracting, which is not part of the global information economy. And so Masterpiece Launchpad is a technology accelerator specifically designed to enable Masterpiece engineers to build their own companies and to start them and and uh, and move into the commercial, primarily cyber arena, but other technology arena. I've been involved in research a number of different locations uh, in here in the region. And one of the things that I've learned with the team that I work with is that there are very few product companies in cybersecurity you know, in comparison, roughly 5% of cybersecurity companies in our region are product. Everybody else is service or solutions. Why does it matter? Well, a couple of things. So the services business, especially the local services business, has a large component of government contracting. And it's kind of easy, but it's not what investors really want, right? Because, you know, as Microsoft demonstrated in the early 80s, you know, the incremental cost of a piece of software is... Um, is free, right? Mm -hmm. So those businesses are highly scalable and you see that online and it's not it's not accidental that the, the largest businesses we have today are technology product businesses or, you know, internet oriented network effect kind of businesses. And that's not a services business which is linearly scalable, right? You have a certain number of people and you get, every time you add more people you grow but it's a very linear model. I had an investor tell me once that, um, you know, a dry cleaner is a good business, but they're never investing in it. Mm. So if you want to generate the capital for investment, you need a um, business model that has increasing rate of returns. And so what we're looking for at Masterpiece at Launchpad is we talk with our engineers and say, is your idea an idea that is scalable, right? Can it 
can it generate a business that has a hockey stick model? Because that's what investors are looking for. So it sounds to me like how you're differentiated uh, from, say, a Mach 37 Cyber Accelerator or um, uh, Data Tribe or, or others is, is that you're actually spinning companies out of an existing government contractor. Is that the big difference? That's it. I mean, and we're so I actually I know the Data Tribe guys and I know uh, Rick Gordon very well. Um, Over at Mach 37. At, at Mach 37. I'm a big fan of, of both of their models, but they start with investment dollars and they're looking for entrepreneurs to get behind, right? And so they already kind of have companies coming to them. We are what I like to call a pre-startup accelerator. So we start with the raw engineering talent. In fact, when people come to Masterpiece, I tell them, come to Masterpiece. It's a great place. You get to work overtime for free. And if you do a really good job, I'll teach you how to leave the company. <laughs> What a great sales opportunity. Come and work for free and uh, you can get rich. But that's what entrepreneurs do, right? I mean, they do it nights and weekends. That's what they do. As you look at this region, is this a model that you see other government contractors starting to do more? Or are you surprised that more aren't doing it? Because this will seem to be a pretty, a pretty smart thing to be doing. So one, I expect as we have success, we might see more people try to emulate it, but it's pretty hard, right? So my background's a little bit unique in that I was a partner at Booz Allen Hamilton, but I also worked for Intel in Silicon Valley in what became Intel Ventures. So in the mid '90s, I was doing, I was part of Intel's group that did, you know, dot com investment. So I have, and I started two companies and, and exited two startups pretty successfully. So I've got kind of the combination of, you know, West Coast VC startup and uh, Washington DC area government contracting. And so I live at that intersection. So, and that's what we, in a lot of ways, we built Masterpiece to help. I try to find people that would have been like me, right? Am I building a place I would have wanted to go to when I was an engineer trying to start a technology company coming out of a government contractor, which is what I did early, early, you know, in the mid eighties, I actually was the software development lead for a company, BTG which was a local success company. You worked for Ed right? Bursoff. I did. I was Ed's 24th person. Okay. And okay. Ed's been a giant in the government contract industry right. for a long time here. As you look at and as you mentor these companies, what are the biggest skill gaps between being a really successful deliverer of technology services and being a really successful software product entrepreneur? What are the skill gaps? So, well, let's maybe I'll take a step back and look at the people we get. Right. So the engineers that we hire, I mean, we're focused in the Columbia area. So we get a lot of brilliant software people with strong math backgrounds because that's part of that mission space. It's not just software development, but it, it has the networking and cryptography pieces. And these people tend to be introverts. Right. Then they work for a government agency that you're not supposed to say anything to anyone about. And then they live in the Columbia area, which is and, and historically been a bit remote relative to the D.C. region, right? So you have guys that have, uh, they are introverts, engineers, work on stuff they can't tell anyone about, and they've moved to a place that's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's Other no than that, longer it's, in the it's great. Area, right? Right. And so, so now you say, okay, what does it take to start a company? And it's almost all the opposite things, right? How do you go out? How do you, how do you live in the world of conflict of a startup where you're confident enough that you can sell your product or sell your service, 
but also not so overconfident that you're making claims that aren't true, right? So the startup world is, a, is one that you have to kind of always live on this edge of promising things that aren't quite finished yet, but not promising things you can't deliver, right? Looking at a future that's really optimistic while not, you know, betting the farm too early because you're borrowing money to start it, other people's money, right? And so other people's money always comes with a, you know, some strings attached. So, always. So that, so teaching engineers what it is to be business people is, that's where I spend my time. And we've got a, a, a bunch of ways of doing that. Um, every Wednesday uh, evening, five to seven, it's pizza and beer and, um, you know, caffeinated drinks. Of course. Uh, and we tend to have folks coming in. So you mentioned the Data Tribe guys. They've come in. You know, we've got Cisco's uh, Cisco Security Group, which was the Source Fire guys, right, that also came out of the agency. So they've come on. Uh, Ron Gould has come in. So we basically have a program of entrepreneurs that are local that come in and kind of tell their stories. So it's a lot of storytelling and a lot of vetting of new ideas. And then... Um, and then the engineers start their ideas and we try to get behind them. But it's not, it's a very bottoms up organic process. So I don't tell anyone no to any of the ideas that they want to start. What I do say is, okay, if you want to do that, here's where that needs to get to. Here's what it needs to look like. Here's why investors might be interested. So here's how customers get interested. Because by the way, it's not about investors. It's about customers, mm -hmm. right? If you can avoid investors, great, right? Um, and... And it's more, here's the kind of questions you have to have good answers for. And if you want to work on these, it's the kind of the overtime for free. It's an inverted IRAD model. So uh, a lot of internal government- Internal R&D. Yeah, uh, internal R&D. So a lot of government contractors have R&D. Typically, they allocate a budget for R&D at the beginning of the year. They take proposals. They vet them. They have some great group of, you know- brains on a stick internally that say, oh, these are the ones we want to get behind. And then they they allocate dollars. And then because most of them are services companies, it's people on the bench doing the work, not the actual guys with the ideas. And we've kind of flipped that whole model on the head. So we have an, an R&D budget. But what I do is I tell the guys, you go out and work in this yourself in your spare time, you know, in the evenings, on the weekends. And when you hit this milestone, I'll give you a cash bonus. This sounds an awful lot like to me, uh, Drew, as, as we wind this up, this sounds a lot to me like what Google does in Silicon Valley, for example. I mean, it, it it's modeled after that. In fact, if you go on our website, you'll see a link to a Google Documents, how Google works. So what we've tried to do is take um, their notion of smart creatives, right? The kinds of people that can start businesses, which are the lever point, because starting a technology business or a business of any kind has never been easier, right? It used to be that if I built... If I had a business, I needed infrastructure, right? If I wanted a technology business, I needed servers. Now I can go online with a credit card and stand up a world-class servers at Amazon. So, so we said, gee, the barriers to a business are going away. It's about the idea, the commitment, and building something that, frankly, customers want, right? And scaling that. And so what can you do to operationalize those philosophies to provide a platform for people who are in the government marketplace but want to do something else and how can you create a win-win i believe you know great businesses are always about win-wins and so you know we're not trying to just extract people from government contracting what we're trying to do is provide a roadmap for people who are likely want to leave that in some ways it 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 gives them a 
It lowers the risk to the engineers themselves. In many ways, it has them stay at their government jobs longer and provides the government more access to commercial stuff coming back to them. So we have an example here, folks, of how you can help the region and people who are interested in being entrepreneur retool away from government contracting. Definitely check out Masterpiece Launchpad. Drew Cohen, CEO, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me. Business is driven by growth, yet surprisingly few entrepreneurs actually understand where growth comes from. Courtney Spaeth is CEO and founder of Growth Period. Her expertise is helping companies acquire new customers and grow them. We wanted to get a sense of how entrepreneurs can get this important skill. Courtney, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, I tell my students in the business school that growth doesn't just fall from the sky. You actually have to create the conditions for growth. What do entrepreneurs and businesses have to do to grow themselves? There's a myriad of factors that go into successful growth. First of all, you have to have a goal. I tell people all growth has a goal. It's a lot like having a child. When it's born, most parents want it to have an education, and very few look at the baby and say, I hope he goes to you know, beauty school or, you know, some kind of second tier trade school, they mostly say, oh, I hope he goes to Harvard or Michigan or whatever pops into their mind. With a business, when it's born, you need to have a goal. Is it to get to a certain revenue level and be bought? Is it to get to a certain revenue level and buy others? Is it to pass it down in the generations? Is it to be a lifestyle business and pull a lot of money out of it to have a nice lifestyle for as long as you can. Without a goal, you don't really know what to structure to move forward. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to me that you frame it that way. I find particularly around technology that many people think a business is about the product, but it sounds to me like that's not what you think at all. Well, I think if you base it on a product example, you run into what I call the VCR beta max you know, issue, which was Betamax was the better product, but VCR had the better channel sales. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in DC, I always run into people who actually own Betamaxes, but the majority of the world had a VCR, mm -hmm. right? And again, you didn't sit there watching your video complaining that it wasn't great video. You didn't know the difference. So having a great product is akin to having religion. It's necessary, but not sufficient. You know, you, you need it, because people have to believe in you and you have to believe in the business and you have to have an iron core constitution to even be an entrepreneur. But that doesn't necessarily guarantee success. So I have to be goal oriented. I have to under, have an understanding of what I'm actually getting up every day to do. And I have to have something that's compelling that people want to acquire. But they must. there's a big gap in between. What are the execution steps? What do I have to master as an entrepreneur to be able to, to grow my business? First, you need a goal. So let's say the goal is to be bought at a certain revenue level. Then you need a plan, a growth to exit plan. And we do them in my firm, Growth Period, all the time, where we help companies say, in five years, I want to be at so much EBITDA or so much gross revenue, and I want to get bought. And then we work backwards from that, not the accounting, not the legal, not the infrastructure, but the growth. This is what you have to you know, chases a deal. These are the kind of buyers that would pay this sort of multiple for you. And these are the sort of deals that they look to invest in or they look to acquire. And once you understand that, you create a roadmap. It is an art, but it is a process. And without the process, you don't have growth. Sounds to me, again, this it sounds like, again, having a plan, having a strategy, almost a playbook for, for a business. 
if I am starting out my business and I am inundated and many startup entrepreneurs are with the idea of lean startup methodology, you know, fail fast, find a customer and all these other things. As a practical matter, how do I know whether or not I have a business that's capable of growth? I think that's a good question. Not all businesses are meant to be successful businesses. Sometimes you succeed accidentally in the beginning and then you can't sustain it. Sustainability usually is the marquee indicator of whether your business is viable in the long run. So in the first year, almost anyone can get away with anything because friends and family kick in to help you most of the time. The second year is when they start to erode mm -hmm. from that base and expect you to stand on your own two feet. Again, a lot like a child, right? We'll help you walk, but then you've got to make it on your own. The third year is when you really get into sustainability issues. Are you retaining your clients? Do you have the bandwidth to handle the operations as well as growth? Are you hiring smart people? And if you can't get through the third year, obviously then it wasn't a successful business. To be successful, you really need to keep your eyes on the prize when it comes to growth. You need to have that plan. You need to have a process. You need to have a strategy. And then you need to invest in talent. Growth is a lot about the talent in your organization or external to your organization and how process-oriented they can be. We don't like luck in growth, which a lot of people start out with, right? They got lucky initially with their idea or their product because it's not repeatable. You need something that's repeatable. You don't want to just grow to 3 million. You then want to grow to 5 million right. and then again to 10, 15, 30, whatever your, your milestones are. So you can't do that based on luck. No, you can't. And I think that that is where I see a lot of entrepreneurs fail because starting a business, as you say, you've got your friends and family. Also, if you have an interest in technology or service, you may be able to find those first couple of customers within your first uh, sphere of influence. The challenge is, as you say, is scaling. You've described strategy so far. My experience, though, a lot of this is not just about strategy. It's also about organizational change, the professionalization of a company, which is where a lot of entrepreneurs fall down, don't they have to be willing to give up some control to professionals in order to really scale a business? It depends on their level of expertise, right? If you're a seasoned executive that's decided to leave corporate America and start a business, you may already have some of the skills necessary to scale it up. I think it's always about giving up control in the appropriate verticals, right? Whether you need to bring in a president and you stay a CEO, whether you need to bring in you know, a, a very strong CFO because you're going to be doing deal making. All of that gets back to having a growth plan and then understanding at what point you build up your C-suite, at what point you build out your program management staff or, or your sales staff, whatever it is you're focusing on. And I think a lot of that has to do with the leadership mentality of entrepreneurs who by nature are aggressive but don't always have an inbox. Well, what's your sweet spot from the standpoint of what type of companies and size does a growth period like working with? Well, we'll work with all different stage companies. We work with early stage entrepreneurs to some extent, but we really pick carefully, right? Um, in general, if you want organic business development, us helping you do deals with companies or the government, for example, we prefer that you be at least 30 million in revenue. But you know, on the tech side, we work with a lot of smaller early stage companies. It's just a question of going through our vetting process and us determining a variety of factors, mostly around growth. Do you have the right leadership team? Do you have the right funding structure? Do you have a plan? Do you have a goal? You know, what is the offering you're bringing or the service you're bringing and how viable is it? How crowded is the market? Is it saturated with, 
you know, all different kinds of people doing largely the same thing. Do you really understand what you're offering to the market? You know, what's your strategy for growth? These are all things that we look at before we work with you. So growth is not an accident. Growth is intentional. Oh, yeah. And and we're professional growers. In fact, we refer to ourselves as professional killers, not eaters. We want to help you win it, but we don't want to run it. Most people want to run it and don't want to have to do the work to win it. And it is very hard work. Another reminder that here in the greater Washington region, not only are there people who can help you grow businesses, there are lots of businesses that can grow. Courtney Space, CEO and founder of Growth Period. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, John. Entrepreneurship in the greater Washington region. For many people, it's, I want to stay as far from government as I possibly can. For others, it's, I want to be as close to government as I possibly can. But some entrepreneurs Manage to blend the two. Ola Sage is CEO of eManagement and CyberRx is a great example of the surfing that you can do here in the greater Washington region to build great companies. Ola, thanks for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Well, you are a great example of an entrepreneur who gets stuff done, but in some ways you're running against two different types of entrepreneurs. I see folks say, oh, government, bah, I want to stay as far away. And others saying, are you kidding? Government's the best place I, I can uh, find to make money. You're managing to do both. How is it possible? Well, it's definitely a day-by-day work-in-progress kind of thing. You know, I started e-management 18 years ago. And the one goal that I had was, what can we do using technology to help our government operate more efficiently? And that's what drove me to start e-management. And 18 years later, later, it continues to be the day-to-day mission of what we do. How can we use technology to help our government operate more efficiently. And so we do that by implementing enterprise solutions that help them run their um, organizations better, help them uh, accomplish their mission goals faster, and actually improve their ability to serve our citizens. Uh, 18 or 16 years uh, later, I started a second company called CyberRx. And this one is actually focused on private companies, helping them be safer online and um, providing them with tools and um, approaches that they can use to actually reduce the possibility that they're going to experience a significant cybersecurity event. Now, I've been told by other business leaders that it's impossible. I mean, I've been told this. It's impossible to have an organization that sells to the government the same time you sell to private companies. Do you buy that? Obviously not. But what what are they missing and, and, and you've managed to figure out? It, it, it can be tricky. I agree with that. I think a lot of it is about focus. One of the reasons that we uh, st- that I started a second company was to allow us to focus and not um, be caught up in trying to serve both the government and the private sector within the same company. And so e-management focuses on federal government and CyberX focuses on the private sector. But it is true that if you're not clear about what objective or goal you're trying to or what problem you're trying to solve that you can start spinning your wheels at the moment there seems to be a developing trend within this administration on the idea of business people business leaders changing government or making government more effective you're at the cross-section and have been now for quite a while where are there opportunities for business practices to make government better You know, yes, I think, as you said, this new administration has made it a priority. But, you know, we've been in business 18 years. So we've seen both sides of the aisle, so to speak, work at this chip at this problem. And, and, you know, I don't know that it's necessarily just a problem. It's both a problem and an opportunity, because as technology changes and improves, 
and their new innovations, that creates opportunities to do things differently. So, you know, just in the in the area of social media, 18 years ago, that was not something that the government was involved with at all. Mm-hmm. Today, it's pretty much, you know, everywhere. And so that's an opportunity for business to really help the government be able to use social media to advance their goals. That is a great example. You've been here in this community for quite a while. Did you grow up here? Did not. How'd you get uh, here? Although it feels like I've been here. <laughs> oh, well, I think forever. you and I share that. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually uh, what you call the great American dream, an immigrant who came here for a better education, um, got my both my undergrad and my master's here, and then started a business, and now two businesses. And so, yes, I am living the American dream. So you're living the American dream, and as a immigrant, as an entrepreneur, what is it about this community that made this the right place for you to become an entrepreneur? I think it's kind of funny, you know, um, this idea of buy local that you hear a lot in, in retail. I found that to be true also in my business, meaning that this was an area where the customers were here, the workforce was here, the uh, lifestyle was here. And so I've been really privileged to have be able to have a business where it's it's possible to thrive local local so when i think of think think local i think hey it's possible to have a small business that's getting things done in in our company over 70 percent of our employees live and work in in our state so that's a great kind of tribute to the ability to be able to attract talent and have a customer base that's really you know that's right around the corner and then just the amenities here, just all the everything. D.C. is is really close to where we are. We're headquartered in Silver Spring, Maryland. So we have all of the benefits of the restaurant, the theater, you know, all the great things, the outdoors activities, et cetera. So it's just a great place for a business. So you were involved in as an advisor or, or board member in Montgomery County trying to build um, that community So you're in a position now to see uh, what could or should be done. What are some of the practical steps that you see Montgomery County taking to promote uh, this this idea of connectedness or more broadly in the region? What are you what are you liking when you look out right now? I think one of the things that I'm really beginning to appreciate is how much our county, Montgomery County, has been almost like a diamond in the rough or, quote unquote, the best kept secret, meaning that there are a lot of businesses that don't know what is available for them in Montgomery County or what could be attractions for them to either grow or start their companies in Montgomery County. So one of the things that uh, we're being very intentional about, the new uh, president, uh, David Petter, is kind of leading this charge is really to get the word out about our county and the opportunities for small businesses, the access to top talent, Um, all the amenities, particularly for millennials, that are important to them. And so I think that's one of the things that's encouraging. The other thing is that we really want to be an epicenter for cybersecurity. And so, um, you know, we just recently, well, last fall, had a report um, done on kind of what are the opportunities for our county and the region in cybersecurity. And I think that's one of the exciting things as we move forward, that we don't just need to be an island as as a county, that we can really leverage the assets of all of the other communities around us as we build this new cybersecurity ecosystem. Strong words and important words from another entrepreneur here in the D.C. region, Ola Sage. Thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What's Working in Washington. Our executive producers, Tracy Madigan, and our online contributors are Michael Hoffman and Barbara Ulrich. 
Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to What's Working in Washington, the power to get things done. Download this show or any of our weekly programs at federalnewsradio.com. What's Working in Washington, Monday afternoons at 2.30 on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 a.m.